Would you ever consider running for political office? After what we just lived through the last 18 months, could you ever see yourself giving speeches, shaking hands, and asking for votes? I'm Barbara Dundon for the 20 by 70 podcast, and I've come here to City Hall to ask that question to folks who flocked here to the Christmas Village. Would you ever consider running for political office? <sighs> not really. Probably not. <laughs> why not? The, uh, I guess the, the amount of deception I think that's necessary in order to get to high political office at all is something that I'm not really capable of. And considering the political climate these days, to some degree, I think there's something suspect about somebody who wants to have that much power anymore. So. Would you ever consider running for political office? No. <laughs> Can you tell me why? I'm disenchanted. Hi, just a minute. We're doing a little survey about people wanting to run for political office. Oh. Have you ever considered running for political office? No. And why not? Because I'm not a liar, a thief, and a crook. <laughs> and that's what I think they are. No. I don't want that responsibility. I think I think politics are very corrupt. Would you ever consider running for political office? No way. When we met Linda Costello from Northeast Philadelphia, the clouds parted, if only for a few moments. I would. I think I would. I'm pretty big in my community. Like I, you know, I follow. Would you run for if you did? No, um, I don't know. I'm not sure. Maybe a council person or... What would you hope to accomplish? Hmm. I don't know. I mean, definitely, um, I think people need to get along better. So I think I would make that a big part of my agenda that we all live here, you know, like, and maybe trash. <laughs> like to clean up the trash and, you know, we all live here. Don't throw trash where you live. So doing a survey. Ever consider running for political office? <laughs> no. <laughs> That's very She's my daughter. <laughs> oh, I, I don't think I would run for political office. It would take me too long to purge my Facebook of all the horrible things I did in college. <laughs> this is so entertaining. I could stay here all day. But I think it's time to toss this back over to our host, Chris Satulo. Thanks, Barbara. This is 20 by 70, the scrappy little podcast for people who expect more from Philadelphia. As you heard in Barbara's chats with folks passing by City Hall, some people would just as soon try to sneak a pork chop past a wolf as put their name on an election ballot. The reasons for this are many. Politics can get nasty. It can force you to forfeit your privacy while you empty your bank account. And you might have to kiss babies and suffer fools gladly. Worst of all, you might lose, even after everyone around you has told you you're going to win. Just ask Hillary Clinton. Despite all that, and despite all the shock and despair that the November 8th results spread around the deep blue city of Philadelphia, Something extraordinary happened one night recently in Old City, not long after the election. The Committee of 70 co-sponsored an event with Young Involved Philadelphia. It was called Born to Run. 
held on the Monday night after the election at the Painted Bright Arts Center. It invited younger Philadelphians to consider running for political office. On the program were some millennials who've done just that, like Doug Oliver, who ran for mayor of the city last year, and state rep Brian Sims. The week before the event, only about 30 people had signed up for it. But on the night itself, about 270 people crammed into the Painted Bride. The place pulsated with a sense of urgency, looking for a solid place to land. One of the speakers at the Painted Bride was Ann Wabayashi of Emerge Pennsylvania, an organization that seeks to encourage and prepare women to run for office. She wasn't surprised to see so many women reacting to their keen disappointment at Clinton's loss with a new sense of urgency. It was really reassuring, um, and it's, it's, it, it tracks pretty closely with the, the response we've been getting at Emerge since Election Day. You know, I think women, um, I think women are fed up. I think women are, are ready to, to see some changes and to see their voices finally being, uh, being part of governments and being part of, of the political process, and, and that's really exciting for me to see. Another person at the Painted Bride that night, Janine Pilla, teaches media to high school students. At the event, she asked Oliver how she could get her students to stop chattering about pipe dreams like Kanye West for president and instead to engage more practically with politics. By the end of the event, she was thinking about how she herself could engage. Here's her dialogue with our producer, Noah Levinson. Are you considering a run for public office? I would love to. <laughs> I am. I would do, if I were to run for public office, it would definitely be in the name of education. Do you think you'll get in under the wire and apply for uh, Emerge? Oh, yeah, of course. Have you have you applied for their program? I haven't applied. I actually had no clue it existed until tonight. So I'm glad I, I attended this event. Will you, I think they have like a deadline tomorrow night. Are you going to apply? Oh, yeah, I can, I can write that up real quick. <laughs> Of course, running for office is not the only way to do something to improve elections. Jessica Herring said she'd talk to a civic association leader about a goal closer to home. And the same guy is going to help me um, try to petition to have a polling place move to my actual condo so that we don't have to go out a mile up the street and hopefully we can raise the vote in our local community. Was there a long line at your polling place this year? A uh, huge line. So I got there like 10 minutes before the polls opened and the line was around the block. I'm joined now by David Thornburg, the Committee of 70's head potentate. Welcome, David. Thanks, Chris. Feeling pretty potent. Yeah, you're looking at it too, David. You were at the Painted Bride that night uh, that we just described. What did you take away from that event? Uh, awesome. Uh, I mean, there was an incredible upwelling of energy and let's just say a little frustration and basically, you know, several hundred people, mostly young folks saying, I got to do something. I got to find some way to get involved and maybe I ought to give a look at this crazy business of running for office. Just an incredible experience. Right, and you uh, spoke a little bit at the end and gave them some advice on what the uh, the next steps or another way of thinking about the energy in the room was. Yeah, the, the format was really focused on how-to. It wasn't just kind of a cheerleading exercise because, you know, running for office in, in our head is, is uh, uh, something you do at a specific time, at a specific place, uh, for a specific purpose. So I actually quoted one of my favorite movies uh, of all time, 
the uh, uh, the candidate. Oh yeah, you remember movie. that one? Oh, great movie. Yeah, blast great from movie. the past. Early 1970s, Robert Redford, probably the best movie on a political campaign ever done. So as you know, Chris, mm. at the very end, Robert Redford, uh, who is this improbable kind of lefty liberal community activist who runs for Senate, it, uh, runs for Senate, wins, and then on his way to making the acceptance speech, he pulls his campaign manager aside and says to him, what do we do now? So that... Uh, event that we co-sponsored with the Young Involved Philadelphia uh, uh, folks was an attempt to answer that question uh, to the people who were there and to others like them. Like, okay, I'm interested, I'm revved up, I'm ready to go, what do I do now? So we hope this is the, the first of a continuing series of ways that we can both encourage and educate and inform that process. So it's not a one-off. There'll be No, I don't think so. And I don't think this, uh, this energy is going away anytime soon. I think there's, there's something in the water out there in a very positive way. And by the way, David, as unlike it, it is for me to show off, I just wanted to mention that uh, the name of the candidate that Robert Redford beats in the candidate is Crocker Jarman. Oh, how about that? How perfect. I, I remember mean, that. Was there ever a more Republican, stentorial name than right. Crocker Jarman? Right, right. He was a, a, a scion of privilege, as they say. Mm-hmm. Now, from the Department of Tortured Segways, we were talking about future elections. Uh, we do want to look back at the last election. Now, just bear with us. We know you don't want to think about it, but please hang in there. There's a reason. Um, on November 8th, uh, in, in the days after, Committee of 70 put out a survey to capture the experience of voters in Philadelphia and the region about what happened for them at the polls. How did that go? Yeah, well, as you know, we've raised a lot of questions about the integrity and the leadership and the efficiency of our city commissioners in here in Philadelphia who we elect to run elections. So the question is, how to go on November 8th? Heretofore, there's been no vehicle for voters to say good, mm-hmm. bad, or ugly. So we floated this online survey now for the third time. We got about 1,700 responses. 1,700, that's good. Yeah, that's it's actually, lot. I mean, there were 700,000 people voting. Mm-hmm. So, and, and this was totally voluntary, you know, mm-hmm. no coercion involved. So we think it was pretty good response. And, and here's, the, here's the sort of top line. By and large, it was an okay experience uh, with a couple of uh, sore spots. One is... One in five people waited in line more than half an hour, which violates the federal standard, uh, which says nobody, quite reasonably, Mm -hmm. should have to wait in line for more than half an hour to vote. The other thing is there was this sort of general sense, particularly around uh, registration issues, voter ID issues, and absentee ballot issues, this general sense of confusion and misinformed election workers. And and overall, there's this sense of... um, it seems to me like voting seems to be like it's 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 out of a page from 1950s Soviet era shopping. Right. It's just not a pleasant experience. It's a dreary, confused uh, process with long lines and so forth. So right, right. You know, during the day, you know, part of my duties at Committee of Seventy on the day was to survey those responses in real time as they were coming in. And I saw a lot of complaints about having questions about the ballot and not getting a clear answer in divisions where there, or, or in polling places where there was more than one division voting. There needed to be two lines, and nobody would tell you what was the right line to get in. And many people discovered to their yeah. pain they get to the desk they've been standing in the yeah, wrong line right, for. Yeah, right, right. You're in the like bread that. line. You should be in the soup e- line. Exactly, and just a sense that the ballot was confusing and nobody could explain yeah. the ballot. So. Yeah. 
Well, you know, one reaction to all of this is like, oh, it's Philadelphia. This is how we do elections. But what's the tagline on this podcast, Chris? Expect more. Expect more. We should be expecting more of this voter experience. We should be, you know, you don't you don't go to Trader Joe's and they wait in line. You wait in line for forty five minutes just to you know pick up right. your, your cereal or what have you. So you know we have to expect more. This should be a twenty first century experience. And I would just as a preview of coming attractions would remind folks that the elections for election board workers are coming up in the spring uh, and fall of two thousand seventeen. So if you are not happy with the way elections are working at your local polling place, it's your chance to step up and say, I can do better. I can bring this into the 21st century. Um, so, you know, preview of coming attractions, we're going to be making more of that in the future. But right. And as a reminder, you mentioned we have the elected city commissioners who collectively make more than $300,000 in order to run two customer experiences a year. Yeah. Right. And yeah. uh, it's like the Eagles only had two games, you know, right. And they so serve the beer. So if they were Domino's, they would have been giving one out of five customers a free pizza. Right? <laughs> right. That's not That's really right. a great customer <laughs> performance. You, you know? can't give them a free vote. Too, right. So right. A do over. And I mean, here's the other thing, Chris. You know, long lines logically dissuade people, discourage people from voting. Right. Right. If you're you know, there was a there was a line of people still at 9.45 p.m. at Temple mm -hmm. of people who had been there for three hours. Now, if you walk up to that line, you think like, oh, how long is the, you ask the person in front of you, how long is the wait? Oh, look, I've been here forever. Do you think there's any chance you might go home and say, oh, screw it, I'm not voting today? Right. The answer is yes. There's one more thing, Chris, that I, mm. I want to slip in here. Uh, national research says that about 1% of people who don't vote don't vote because the lines are too long. So there are th 300,000 people who didn't vote in Philadelphia on November 8th. 1% of 300,000, 3,000. Mm -hmm. You think like, well, that's not very many, but here's the kicker. The, the margin uh, across the Commonwealth for Hillary Clinton was 46,000, okay? So let's presume that a vast majority of those people dissuaded from voting by long lines would have voted for Hillary Clinton. All of a sudden, that margin comes down to 43,000, and it's getting very, very close to the point where there, there has to be a mandatory recount of the votes in Pennsylvania. Right, the margin she lost by. The saying, margin yeah, she lost right, by, yeah. Right. So and in, in a long lines cost votes. And That's in, a simple story. In a city election, if there were a contested city election for council – or for state representative or something like that, you know, the, the amount of lost votes end, could end up being decisive. Yeah. Uh, anyway, the point of uh, American democracy is everyone should get a chance to vote who wants to vote. And if just bad service is chasing away thousands of people, shouldn't be tolerated. Absolutely. Uh, we got to expect more. Thanks, David. Well, I know maybe you don't want to talk about this election anymore, but guess what? We're going to do it because I'm joined now by Holly Otterbein of Philadelphia Magazine, one of the city's top political journalists. And Holly's been thinking a lot since November 8th about how journalists and educators alike need to do some real soul-searching and revamping a practice to battle the rise of fake news and partisan bubbles. Welcome, Holly. Thank you for having me. So we're hearing a lot about fake news these days, but Holly, how would you define it simply? 
Fake news is news that's made up um, by people sometimes in other countries. Sometimes uh, they're teenagers in our own country who just want to get clicks. And they oftentimes just completely make up news altogether. Or they take something that has a sort of kernel of truth and then exaggerate it to the point where it's completely untrue. So the classic example, I think, from this election was there was a fake news story going around that said that the Pope had endorsed Donald Trump. Of course, this isn't true. And in fact, the Pope had actually said some critical things about Donald Trump. But that was shared tons of times and many people believed it to be true. I think, um, you know, some people who are listening may ask themselves, how could anyone believe that a fake news story is true? They're oftentimes so obviously unreal. But I think a lot of elderly people are often tricked. I think that a lot of young people are often tricked. There was a study that came out that said that a large number of high school students could not determine whether something was fake news or not. That's very disturbing. And partly because of digital technology, it is a matter of child's play to make any news story look as authentic as something that's in the New York Times or the National Review or whatever. Um, So, uh, and we're going to get a bit to your thoughts about how journalists could have done a better job in this election, but to just sort of stick with this theme, uh, when you and I talked a little while ago, you were very um, passionate about the idea we have to figure out a way to teach media literacy. We have to get to the point where people both young and old can distinguish a little better between fake and news that at least is attempting to be true. We really do. We need media literacy starting first in our schools, I think. Um, You know, I went and spoke to a class at Bryn Mawr the other day, a journalism class, and a woman was talking about the election and about news coverage, and she said, you know, I think that Fox is kind of conservative, and I think MSNBC is kind of liberal, And so I I watch CNN usually because it seems sort of in the middle. This is a woman who is educated enough, talented enough to be at Bryn Mawr, and she's still questioning whether those things are true. Mm -hmm. That's problematic. I think that shows how deep the problem goes, right? Um, So, I mean, if she thinks that, what are people who aren't going to college thinking, right? who don't have that opportunity to learn more. So I think we need media literacy classes in our high schools that not only teach people how to distinguish fake news from news that is trustworthy, but also to you know be able to analyze what the different uh, biases or angles or takes are at each um, media organization, and be able to also analyze what you know perhaps conflicts of interest um, certain media organizations have. Right? We had. Um, a Trump, uh, basically someone who was who had been in the Trump campaign, Corey Lewandowski, who then became an analyst on CNN. We also had reports coming out saying that there had been a question leaked to Hillary Clinton's campaign before one of the primary debates. By so, Donna Brazil. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, so those things are, are things that I think people need to know while reading and listening and watching the news. I'm just taking a wild guess, and I think you probably graduated from high school a little more recently than I did. So do you have any recollection in high school of any of your teachers trying to do any of that with you or with the class? I really don't. I really don't remember anything like that at all. And something that goes hand in hand with this is civic literacy, Mm -hmm. teaching people how elections actually work, teaching people the nitty gritty of democracy. We've really gotten away from that. I mean, And you see this in news journalism as well. I mean, oftentimes we're reporting on the flashiest things as opposed to, you know, the real way 
that things actually get done and don't get done, right? I mean, how many times do we report on the importance of committee person elections in Philadelphia? And yet they are literally the foot soldiers that create the Democratic Party in the fifth biggest city in the country, which has huge national effects in a swing state. Right. So now we're you're, you're making the elegant segue to the other thing. We don't want to leave anybody with the impression that we're sitting here, two journalists, blaming the public for you know for being ignorant getting it along not at all you have a lot of criticisms of our craft and how they behave in this election i do i think we made mistakes um at the same time i think that a lot of the mistakes have been overblown and that criticism of the press has reached this point um that we're being we're being demonized um Mm -hmm. we're being dehumanized you know we have uh the president-elect calling us scum and saying we're the lowest form of life Mm -hmm. um but at the same time, we, we did make real mistakes, and I think that we need to you know have a moment where we think about them and then try to move forward and really yeah. change. So, so let's run down the list. What do you yeah, think? Yeah, so one of the things that I, um, I believe is true and that caused problems in the election this year is that journalists tend to report on people that they think are going to win differently than they report on people who they think are not going to win. So... In the presidential race, you saw journalists cover very heavily um, the Clinton Foundation and possible conflicts of interest there, which they should have. That was, you know, a huge potential, I think, conflict of interest um, with all of the donations that came into it from foreign leaders and others. On the other hand, Donald Trump, who was seen by the press, conservative, liberal press, you know, folks in the middle, as not having a real shot. Um, his massive conflicts of interest were not really covered during the election. Um, so he owns businesses around the world. Uh, you know, countries and states can lower his taxes. They can ease his regulations and try to influence him that way. And that really wasn't explored, and not nearly to the extent that the Clinton Foundation's problems were. Why? Because I think that people thought that Clinton was going to win and gave her more scrutiny over serious things. At the same time, Journalists tend to give coverage to candidates that they believe are outrageous and say wild things. And so I think that drove a lot of the coverage of Trump in the primary, even though he had no political experience. He got all of this play. I mean, on CNN, they would run his uh, rallies just live, give him this free propaganda. um, And that really helped him. So, and, you know, locally, this happens, too. Every time that Milton Street runs for office, he gets lots more coverage than other serious candidates who we don't deem to have a chance. Um, In last year's mayoral primary, I think Tony Williams was viewed as the person who was going to win. And so his, uh, the super PAC that was supporting him got a lot of coverage. It was uh, these these very wealthy Uh, financial investors who paid for his super PAC and they got a lot of scrutiny and they should have but at the same time Jim Kenney who wasn't seen at least at first as having as much of a shot as Tony Williams um, his super PAC didn't get as much coverage. All right let me go to another level deeper on that and it maybe leads to the the last point I want to make sure you get a chance to make. This the the investing firm whose uh, principals were donating heavily to Tony Williams were also huge proponents of school choice and school vouchers, charter schools. And in the world of journalistic groupthink, that's considered somewhat dubious. So there's going to be more scrutiny. 
Um, right, and, Wall and, Street, school e, choice, yeah. a lot of words that get names. Right, e- exactly. So talk a little bit about um, groupthink among journalists. Like, you know, this whole argument about bias, and I've been engaging in it for a very long time um, with people, it's never been true in any newsroom I've been in that we all get it, sit down around the table in the morning and say, how can we help the Democratic Party today? But it is true that journalists tend to be of similar outlook, particularly on social issues, on a lot of political issues. And if you don't have anybody else sort of breaking into that world and saying, wait a second, there's a whole other way of looking at it, you can fall into a kind of groupthink, which when it reaches the audience looks like bias. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I mean, we're humans, and humans are susceptible to groupthink, every last one of us. And so we share a career, but there's also a lack of diversity in the journalism industry in a lot of ways, um, and particularly political journalism. So journalism is, especially journalism leaders, predominantly white and male. Um, I've also noticed at, a, at the ground level a lack of diversity in terms of uh, class background. I've, I've noticed oftentimes uh, journalists come from the middle class or the upper middle class. So we have less representation from people who grew up in the working class and grew up poor. And bingo. Here's part of the reason why people are mystified by Donald Trump's appeal. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, and we also have journalism that is centered in cities. And so, again, you have a lack of diversity in terms of often people who maybe grew up outside of those cities in rural areas. I happen to have grown up in Trump land um, in York County, Pennsylvania. Uh, my town went huge for Trump, and I knew that they would as soon as he came onto the scene. Um, it's a predominantly, very predominantly white town, working and middle class, and a lot of the problems that we've heard about in the past year have hit my town very hard over the last decade or so. Uh, you know, opioid abuse. Um, manufacturing jobs being lost, um, a lot of those issues that I think Trump really um, knew how to play into. Right, but growing up there, you know that there's some very nice people there. It's not just a basket of deplorables living in your hometown. Yes. So you understand there's more dimensions to yes, exactly. the appeal of Donald Trump. Yeah, um, yeah, I noticed throughout the election there were a lot of stories about Trump voters, but oftentimes they had this feeling of being written by people who had just sort of helicoptered in, spent a day there, and kind of looked at these weird creatures like a sociologist would. Mm. Um, people are really complex, and and the reasons that they voted for Trump are very complex. And a lot of folks I saw wanted to, a lot of folks in journalism wanted to be able to say, well, it's either because of racism or it's because of economics. I happen to think it, in many cases, was sort of a mix of both. Um, and 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 sometimes, you know, not. I mean, it's- Well, I, 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 honestly, Holly, tell me what you think about it. I think there's another factor that is actually a fact that many people in the circles in which you and I now move, living in a city, being journalists, regard a lot of the cultural choices that people in other parts of America make with a certain amount of contempt, eating at Applebee's, following NASCAR, mm-hmm. listening to country music. Mm-hmm. And these folks are not dumb. They can they hear us. They can hear the contempt. And I, I see this election as, in some ways, a response of, well, you know, this is what you get when you treat people with contempt. Yeah, they, I, they, I think that's a part of it. And... 
<laughs> you know, we also have contempt towards liberals in elite cities uh, that are drinking lattes and that don't own a gun, right? right. And <laughs> I always just chuckle at that because I say, well, clearly anyone who said that either doesn't know or doesn't care that there are tons of Starbucks in middle America. The mm -hmm. Starbucks in my town is beloved. <laughs> <laughs> and at the same time, are, do those people who are saying that honestly believe there aren't guns in Philadelphia mm -hmm. and other coastal cities? No. Yeah. I mean, there's there are attempts by politicians and other people in power to divide us. And, and sometimes we play into it ourselves by, like you were saying, um, looking down on people. Right. So, you know, clearly you've been doing a lot of soul searching since the election. Have you come to any sort of um, resolutions or vows for the new year about the kind of journalism you're going to do in 2017? Well, one of the things that I hope to do is really look at election coverage differently. And we have a district attorney's race coming up here in 2017, which will be enormously important. Um, you know, if you're afraid of a Trump presidency, you should be very concerned about a, who your district attorney is. Right. Um, they provide a level of in some ways, I think, can provide a level of protection against yeah. um, some of the fears. Yeah, that people I mean, have. If, if you're concerned about immigration, if you're concerned about the Black Lives Matter movement, there, there's a lot at stake in the DA's election. If you, yeah. If you're concerned about the war on drugs. Right. Mm. Um, and m my goal is to cover it differently. So all of those mistakes that I listed um, before in terms of covering people that you think are going to win differently, covering outrageous candidates differently. I'm going to try as hard as possible not to do that and really cover people on the issues because that's what matters and show how their issues can affect people or for the better or worse um, and try not to focus on personality and try not to write off people because they I don't think they're going to win. Newsflash, journalists don't know who's going to win. <laughs> Uh, that sounds like a good set of plans for 2017. Thank you very much, Holly Ottermine, Philadelphia Magazine. Thank you. So that's it for this, our final episode of 20 by 70's inaugural year. During the year, the podcast is roamed across the region's and the nation's civic terrain. It's fumed about public employees who don't do their jobs and praised ones who do. It's explored the rising realm of civic tech and shown you how that's changing the ways you vote and connect with government. It's delved into how local machine politics conspires to keep bright young talent off the ballot. And it's considered how reform known as open primaries might give more fresh faces a real chance to win. If you've missed any prior episodes, they're all still sitting there waiting to fill your earbuds with civic wisdom on iTunes and SoundCloud. We also want to thank everyone who's made this podcast possible including the Scattergood Foundation, the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania, the board of the Committee of 70, particularly its outgoing chairman, Stephen Tang. Also, the producers who've gathered, edited, and mixed the sounds you've heard during the year. Our regular producer, the AbFab, Sophie Reed, as well as this episode's producer, Barbara Dundon, and other important contributors such as Elizabeth Fiedler, Noah Levinson, and Jeremy Qualabam. And all the folks who came to the mic as guests and visiting sages throughout the year. Kudos also to the great staff of 70, Aileen Kane, Patrick Christmas, and Dan Bright, and not to mention the volunteer to top all volunteers, Paul Drosch. And most of all, thanks to our guiding light, Philadelphia's Civic Yoda, David Thornburg, president and CEO of 70, whose passion for dialogue and continuous improvement is what drives this podcast. I'm Chris Satula here to tell you it's been a blast to be the host of 20 by 70's Maiden Voyage this year. 
Barring the Apocalypse, we'll be back in your ear with our next episode in January. Until then, expect more, Philadelphia. Philadelphia.